you to take your Bibles in hand and turn with me to Psalm 22. Then when you have your copies of God's Word open, would you bow your heads with me as we pray. Our Father, we come to you praying that you would send us the Holy Spirit by whom the words before us were inspired and have been preserved that he might enlighten our sin-benighted understandings. Help us to understand and to see and to weep again as we behold the wounds of our Redeemer. And also help us, as the psalm helps us, to come with the apostles and the disciples and Mary, as it were, to the tomb again, and see the stone rolled away, and to meet our risen Saviour, and to rejoice. Work by your word in our hearts. Slay sin by it. Heal our wounds by it. Open our mouths that we might declare your praises among your people by it. And by it, above all, would you work for your own glory and honor in our own lives, in our midst, in our assembly this morning, and in our congregations. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 22 at verse 1, this is the inerrant word of Almighty God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My 
Strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not afar off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. Amen. And we bless the Lord that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Written by King David, the contents of Psalm 22, of course, far surpass any experience of David's life. It is, as we saw a moment ago from the reading of John 19, the psalm quoted by our Savior from the cross and by the Apostle John about the cross. And in my view, any careful reading of the psalm should make it clear that its details can only really safely be read speaking of the cross and in light of Calvary. Its contents uh, exceed anything in, in David's life or experience. In fact, so detailed and accurate a description of the sufferings and the resurrection joy of Jesus is it that some scholars have named it the fifth gospel. In the New Testament and especially in the gospels, we might say that the cross is silhouetted for us. Its meaning is clear and distinct, but many of the details are hidden. The gospel accounts are 
purposefully terse and bare-boned exercises in careful factual reportage. But if the cross is silhouetted in the Gospels, in Psalm 22, the spotlight falls on the cross to pick out the details in technicolor. Especially the details of the inner life of Christ as he hung on Calvary's tree. Here is the cross and the experience of our Lord explained in high definition in three dimensions, as it were. And perhaps most remarkably of all, it comes to us from the vantage point, not of an apostolic witness, not of an observer from the foot of the cross. It comes to us from the vantage point of the one who hung upon the cross and the one who stepped from the tomb himself. It is a prophetic glimpse of the turmoil and the triumph of the heart and soul of our Savior at Calvary. If ever, by the way, you needed evidence to support the uh, doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, surely it's Psalm 22 in the extraordinary way in which it details for us the sufferings of our Savior. If you look at the psalm closely, you'll see it has two major divisions, bringing together in the one psalm both Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The depths of God-forsakenness are here. That's uh, verses 1 to 21. And the heights of resurrection victory are here, 21 to 31. Psalm 22 brings us to the foot of the cross again. To see in vivid color the horror of our Savior's dying love. And then it takes us with Mary very early on that first day of the week to the empty tomb. And there we meet anew with the risen and reigning Christ. Let's think first of all about verses 1 to 21, the crucified sufferings of the Christ. Notice carefully the pattern of uh, these opening 21 verses. There are three blocks of text dealing with the nature of Christ's sufferings. So, verses 1 and 2, the spiritual character of his suffering. Verses 6 to 8, the dehumanizing effects of his suffering. 12 to 18, the acute physical pain of his suffering. Three three blocks of text dealing with his sufferings, after each of which comes a section of text revealing the unshakable faith of Christ despite those sufferings. And in the midst of those sufferings, each of those blocks of text, beginning with the phrase, notice, yet you addressed to God, a prayer to God, yet you, so verse 3, yet you are holy. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not Far off. You see the pattern, these opening 21 verses take us, they take us into the, the swirling maelstrom of Christ's atoning sufferings. One section of the, of the text takes us into the darkness of the cross. And then the next shows us 
our Savior's trust and confidence and rest upon God in the midst of the darkness, alternating back and forth like waves crashing down on the soul of our Savior, only to draw back each time so that we might see the solid rock of confidence in God untouched underneath. Let's think about the first couplet of suffering and confidence here in verses 1 to 5. And notice in particular here how the psalm does not build to a crescendo of suffering. Doesn't, doesn't begin gently and then escalate towards a climax of suffering. It starts with the climactic experience of Christ's suffering. Here is the apex of his sufferings in verses 1 and 2. We might say a great deal about his physical pain. We could detail all the cruelties of Roman crucifixion procedures and as terrible as his physical sufferings undoubtedly were. The true horror of the cross, the hell of the cross, is located not in the nails in his hands and feet, but in the cry of spiritual dereliction that is torn from his mouth here in verse 1. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one's ever lived in the darkness into which our Savior was plunged in that moment. Not even the wicked in hell endure the full intensity and reality of Christ's sufferings here. They are still, they're still finite creatures in hell, aren't they? Paying an infinite debt, but only their own debts. But here in the hours of crucifixion, the God-man pays the penalty for the sin of all of his people. Infinite debts exacted from the, the body and soul of our Savior. And so the full fury of the divine curse falls upon him. As the Father, for the first time, in Jesus' incarnate experience withdrew all consciousness of his fellowship and love. And, and in his place, as the Father withdraws the awareness of his fellowship, in its place, you know, is not emptiness. Jesus is not simply abandoned by the Father. Hell is not simply the absence of God. Hell is the presence of the white-hot fury of the holy and righteous wrath of God. And so the Son is abandoned not to nothingness. It's not simply that the Father withdraws the awareness of His love. But rather it is that the Father gives Him over to the unspeakable horror of the wrath of God due your sin and mine. Somehow in the incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit are able, capable of never ceasing to love the Son, never ceasing to be one with the Son. 
while yet at the very same time pouring out upon the sun the full fury of the white-hot, unmitigated, untempered, unrestrained wrath of God that our rebellion has incurred. It's a great mystery, isn't it, at the very heart of our faith, a question mark. How, what does that mean? How is it that the Son, the God-man, should be plunged into the depths of God-forsakenness while yet our triune God in the mystery of the fellowship of the three persons remains utterly intact? So it's a profound mystery. And yet that great question mark is really heaven's exclamation mark. Our question about this, our unanswerable question about this, is heaven's answer to the depths of our sin and the need of our hearts, the sufferings of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Here's Jesus bearing the condemnation that we have merited. Here, brothers, is what I owe. Here is what you owe. Here is what our sin cost. Here is what our disobedience requires that our Savior endure. Doesn't that beg the question, who among us seeing the cross can long continue to play with our sin? Who here could go on glibly toying with it with something so vile that it would exact such a price from Jesus Christ we who are charged with preaching the cross oughtn't we to be most appalled by the sin that remains in our own hearts that required the cross our tempers After a long day, you come home and the kids are tearing the place up and the house is a mess and your wife is needy and not attentive to you and your temper flares. Our pretended piety praying with grand eloquence when we've scarcely bent the knee to the Lord in days. Our impatience with the sin of other people while we indulge our own. We speak for Christ and we speak of Christ But brothers, as the cross casts its shadow over us again this morning, doesn't it expose anew our own lack of likeness to Christ? See the wretched figure hanging on the cross. And you have a perfect antidote to a casual view of sin. To a flippant, casual view of sin this is what it cost this is what it cost the dereliction and abandonment of Jesus Christ 
to the fury of the wrath of God to make you his child? Will you go on playing with it? Or or will you get serious and take action? And so the question recorded in verse 1 that our Savior hurls into the sky that day at Golgotha surely discloses the perplexity that consumes our Savior in these moments. Why? Why am I God-forsaken? I think it's important for us to recognize as we listen again to that question that on the lips of Jesus it's not a cry of unbelief. It's not an ungodly cry. Notice that although he does cry out in anguish, it's still nevertheless a cry to my God, my God. This is a cry of faith amidst pain pouring from the lips of Jesus. And maybe it's important for someone here today to understand that when he asked it, this why question, he sanctified it for all of us who are ourselves wrestling with inexplicable and sore providences. God may have forsaken his son to the hell of the cross. But the Son has not forsaken the Father in the hell of the cross. He clings to a God whom he cannot see, cannot feel, does not find. And as he does, he's made a perfect repository of grace for us. When we need help. And the heavens seem as brass and God does not seem near. Notice how our Savior sustains this extraordinary faith that continues to speak of God as my God. Look at verses 3 to 5. How does he do it? He recites the faithfulness of God to the fathers. Verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and you delivered them. They trusted in you and were not put to shame. He rehearses, doesn't he, the past grace of God among his people to sustain his own faith. But fresh grace will still be given to him today. He sustains faith in future grace by remembering past grace. I think that's an enormously practical tool to keep in our toolboxes for our own times of trial as well as for the trials of our people that they will inevitably face and you'll be called upon to shepherd them through. Recite God's past grace to sustain faith in your present trials. Nothing can commend it better to us, surely, as a method for perseverance through pain than the knowledge that it was Christ's own method in the extremity of the cross. He recites the creed, doesn't he? That's what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel. He rehearses himself the mighty deliverances of grace from the hand of a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. So if it was his method against the unique agonies of Calvary, it ought to be our method in all our own daily troubles. 
recite God's past grace to sustain faith amidst present trouble. And then verses 6 to 8, the psalm alternates back again to focus once more on the sufferings of the cross. The waves come crashing down after that glimpse in 3 to 5 of the sustaining faith of our Savior. This time our attention is fixed, not so much on the spiritual character, the the inner core of Christ's sufferings, but on the dehumanizing effects of them. Look at the text, verses 6 to 8, but I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him lest he rescue him. Let him rescue him. Uh, for he delights in him. Did you hear that? A worm. Not a man. Despised by the people, treated by them as subhuman. Beneath contempt. Beneath mercy. Here's a message of comfort for our hurting people. Here's a message of comfort for you. Brothers, as you come here bruised and battered after a hard season of ministry, for all who have suffered the stripping away of their dignity, there is someone who has plumbed the depths ahead of us. No one else may ever comprehend your sorrows. No one else may ever may ever fathom their debts. But there are no debts into which you may descend that Christ has not already reached the bottom of. He has travelled to the furthest horizons of human loss and brokenness and pain so that he could say to you, I know, I know, I know. Look at the cross. He was alone, despised, dismissed, mocked. The the religious, they are sneering at him, aren't they? Remember the Pharisees? He saved others. Let him save himself. He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him since he trusts in him. He even describes himself as a worm. And not a man. So you feel you can't go to anyone. You don't know where to turn. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. It's not true, is it? It's not true. You can go to him. Bring your griefs and your cries to him. He understands. He knows. Then look at verses 9 to 11. The waves of suffering, they they draw back again. And here again we see the, the solid rock of trust and dependence upon God that has remained through the onslaught of agony that is etching itself into our Savior's consciousness. This time his faith is bolstered and supported not by the rehearsal of God's past faithfulness to the fathers. This time it is God's past faithfulness in his own life. 
But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Here's Jesus remembering himself as the covenant child. He can trace the ways that from his earliest moments God has been his God. Never having failed to love him and keep him. In all likelihood, you will have members in your churches who are reproaching themselves for having a testimony like this one. I'm a covenant child. I never had a dramatic conversion experience and I never knew a time when I didn't believe. God has been my God from my earliest recollection. We need to help our people understand that's not a second class testimony. That's a glorious testimony. It's Jesus' testimony. It's the way things are meant to be in a family where the grace of God is embraced and rested in. And notice that Jesus uses it here to sustain his faith in the crucible of his most acute suffering. Some of us are wrestling with real anxiety about the future, struggling to feel the realities we confess with our mouths. That God is faithful and he'll be with us in whatever happens. Maybe part of our struggle is whether we've been raised in a covenant home or we've come to faith later from no background at all, part of our struggle may well be that we have ceased to trace in our own stories the past faithfulness and mercy of God. We need to learn in the school of Christ here to reread our life stories, only this time not with ourselves as the central character, but with the God of covenant faithfulness and love as its central character. When you do, you'll find abundant fuel for faith in the worst of times. And so bolstered by the memory of God's covenant faithfulness, the Savior now faces the next crashing wave of suffering. 12 to 18, look at it. Please don't miss the extraordinarily accurate account of the physiological effects of crucifixion the details here about the soul casting lots for his garments at the foot of the cross. Verse uh, 12, he begins to talk about the crowds that surround him and torment him. They are like roaring, uh, many bulls of Bashan, they are like roaring lions gaping wide as if to consume him. Verse 13, they are dogs snapping at him all around. Verse 16, they pierce his hands and his feet, nailed to the cross. They divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing. Verse 18, he is, verses 14 and 15, poured out like water. All his bones are out of joint. His heart is melted like wax. His strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaws. God has brought him to the dust of death. It's a a graphic portrayal of the lingering and 
unspeakably agonizing death of a cross. But then in verses 19 to 21, the final note of faith sounds. Notice how the waves of present pain and suffering break, this time upon a faith that no longer looks back to past faithfulness, now bolstered by the recollection of God's covenant faithfulness, faith begins to plea and to, to, to beg for deliverance and to press God to hear him as he cries. It looks forward for answers. He marshals his faith now to cry for future deliverance. It's not wrong, you know, to ask God to take our trials away. There is a kind of misplaced Calvinism, a fatalism, really, that thinks that the only appropriate response to suffering is passive surrender to pain. Have you come across that? A theology that almost collapses into the idea that suffering is a good thing inherently. That it would be ungodly to seek deliverance from it. But suffering is not good. Though our God can bless it to us for his glory. Even our Lord asks here to be delivered and rescued from it. Look at the text. But you, O Lord, be not far off. Come quickly and deliver me. It is possible to submit humbly to the sovereign grace of God while asking for deliverance from the trials that he has ordained. Anyone who thinks otherwise needs to spend more time in Gethsemane. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me was his cry. He goes on to plead, uh, to plead for rescue. Save me, take it away. That's what he said in the garden, remember? Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Take it away. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. A faith that sustains us in trials is also a faith that does not hold back from asking to be delivered from trials, but presses God's past faithfulness in seeking future grace. Look especially with me, though, at verse 21. Most of our English versions here aren't great. A wooden translation might read something like this. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then instead of another request for rescue, which is what we would expect from the persistent pattern of Hebrew synonymous parallelism in verses 19 to 21, request after request, each line uh, stating the request, the following line repeating the same message in different language to reinforce its point. That parallelism is sustained all the way through until verse 21 where it utterly collapses. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then quite abruptly David declares, not you have rescued me, as the ESV has it. The poor ESV is getting a beating this week. Um, not, Not you have rescued me, but literally, you have answered me. 
As though the request for salvation, for deliverance, has has broken in upon our Savior before even the prayer could be complete. The, The answer has come. And from that point on, if you notice, the, the remainder of the psalm, the whole tone and tenor of it is completely changed. Suffering ceases in the last clause of verse 21. The stone is rolled away in the last clause of verse 21. The, the grave is opened and our Savior steps forth. Easter Sunday dawns bright and clear in the last cause, clause of verse 21. As the Lord hears the cries of his appointed Redeemer and raises him in triumph from the grave. And that is, in the end, isn't it, the great final answer of God to the unanswerable questions that death's unwanted intrusion forces upon us all. This uh, sermon was preached on Easter Sunday in the context of the First Presbyterian Church of dealing with a family beloved in our congregation that had a suicide. This is God's final answer to death's unwanted, unanswerable intrusion. Not just sympathy, not just understanding. Resurrection. Death is undone in the victory of Jesus Christ. He lives. That is what God says to his children as they walk through the valley of the shadow. It's especially wonderful about Psalm 22 is that it tells us how Jesus himself responds to the resurrection before ever it tells us how we ought to respond. Look at the text. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Verse 22. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Verse 25. Jesus' own response to the deliverance of God from the dust of death is worship and praise in the midst of the great congregation. He's talking there about the whole company of the redeemed, the church. The Septuagint says, I'll praise you in the midst of the church. It's beautiful, isn't it? Jesus here is our, he's our song leader, our worship leader. At the head of a great assembly leading their praises. Um, Ivor Martin is still in the free church. I was a free church minister myself when I was there. Um, The songs of God's people were led not by the piano, but by a presenter, someone who would stand before the congregation and set the pitch in the temple and lead the people of God in praises. Jesus is our presenter. He sets the melody for the praise of the whole people of God. He animates the worship of the great congregation. And as the song leader of the church, he summons us, verse 23, to join him. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for, here's why we should worship, for he has not despised, not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. 
the reason for our worship, the reason that you can never close your lips when you hear the words, let us worship God, is because Jesus lives. Any Christian that does not want to sing in light of that great fact makes me wonder if they know Jesus at all. The Father heard his cries and delivered him and we are summoned to worship because he is alive. That's why whatever trials we may face in ministry, a suicide funeral on Monday, whatever opposition we might face from our people as we seek to be faithful in the cause of Christ, however hard and however painful gospel labor may get, This is why there are still grounds for hope and praise. There's always reason for praise. Jesus lives. Perhaps we need to lift our eyes a little higher than our own horizons and remember that the one who sits on the throne has the nail marks in his hands and feet and the evidence of his his dying love for us. He lives. So a great congregation will gather in the wake of those wonderful facts. Verse 26, the poor and the afflicted will be there. The rich and the prosperous, verse 29, will be there. Verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, all people from every class and background brought into the great congregation through faith in Jesus, all of them ignited together in a conflagration of of praise because Jesus died and now he lives. The covenant promise made to Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. The great commission that all the nations should be discipled. Fulfilled because Jesus lives. Fulfilled. Not in any doubt. Because Jesus lives. That is the point of verses 30 and 31, isn't it? Look at them with me. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. A missionary movement launched from the cross and the empty tomb, spanning the globe, spanning the years, till the nations are gathered into that final great assembly. An army of gospel preachers catapulted out into the nations to gather them into the eschatological congregation where praise will be our great business. And you see how they gather them, this army of gospel preachers. What the content of their proclamation is? What is it that will make the nations abandon their idols 
and come to Jesus and worship. It's the message, verse 31, that he has done it. He has done it. Or as Jesus understood those words from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Tetelestai. The work is done. The debt is paid. What a message we have for the world, brothers. Come to Jesus, covenant children. Come to Jesus, all the ends of the earth. It's finished. That's what we get to say. What a privilege to stand up every Lord's Day and say that. The work is done. I have good news. It is finished. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for Christ is risen and He has done it. Oh, let's be sure our mouths are filled with that great theme whenever we rise to speak for God. Let's be sure our mouths are full of that theme whenever we rise to speak for God. This is the message that brings the nations, that assembles the great congregation. What a privilege to share in the gathering of it. Because he suffered and died. The trials of gospel ministry, don't they find perfect understanding in him? We have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And because he lives, the many joys of gospel ministry find their deepest roots in him. Unaffected by circumstances, our deepest joys in gospel ministry come because our Savior lives and reigns and we get to tell the world about it. Sin has been atoned for. The power of the grave has been overcome. He has done it. It is finished. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bless you that Jesus lives. Forgive us when we are, when we give into spiritual myopia, where we, all we can see is ourselves, where we can't see further than our own circumstances, that, that we've forgotten who sits on the throne, and that the joy of the message entrusted to us no longer fires our bones. Help us, please, to come back again to Calvary. To get serious about our sin and to forsake it, seeing what it cost to redeem us from it. And help us to come again to the empty tomb and to begin anew to rejoice and to resolve to live for the glory and fame and honor of the name of the living, reigning Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.